This podcast is not meant to be professional advice of any kind. It's meant to be informative and entertaining. If you make any changes to your life, see the appropriate professional before you do so. Hello, and welcome to SuperAge. My name is David Harry Stewart. I'm the founder of Aegist. At SuperAge, we help you live better and become the best version of yourself. And who doesn't want a SuperAge? Welcome to episode 49 of the SuperAge podcast. This will be dropping on August the 25th, 2021. Great to have you with us. Uh, here, where I am in the mountains of Utah, it's lovely, and fall has started. Well, sort of the trees will be turning soon, but it's, you know, it's going down in the 40s at night and we've been out hiking in the mountains on the weekends. It's super beautiful. And I've been trying this experiment. Okay, so I'm always experimenting on myself with something or other, but this one involves cold waters. So I've been taking cold showers for, you know, maybe the last month or so. And so the water is probably in the low 60s, you know, which is fairly bracing, especially if you, you know, if you live somewhere where it's, you know, like Southern California, where it's <laughs> cold water never gets that cold. Uh, but my plan here is to continue to take a cold shower every day through winter. And what happens here anyway is that it gets quite cold here in the winter. So that cold water will start to be in the 50s and then by probably, you know, mid-February, the water out of the shower is actually like in the high 40s. And going directly into water that cold is quite shocking, but I'm, I'm going to try and just do this every day and see if I can keep taking a shower with just full cold water all the way through the winter and see how that feels. And I, for, for anyone out there who wants to try this, I can tell you that I've been in like cold water, not a shower, but like in a pool I think the coldest it was, you know, maybe like forty nine fifty, and that's that's cold. Uh, you know, you, it's a real shock to the body, but you know, your body kind of kicks into this like we got to generate heat thing right away. And after you know twenty seconds, thirty seconds, it's it's uncomfortable, but it's kind of okay. The shower is way worse because you're rotating and it, you're never constantly. You know, it's sort of warm, cold, warm, cold, and um, it's quite shocking. But the good thing is um, really cuts down on water usage and cuts down on the need of coffee for the morning. I got to tell you, boy, you do that, and it's like, boom, wake up. <laughs> this week on the show, we have Dr. Anna Lemke. And Dr. Lemke is an MD. She's a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Stanford University, and she's an expert on addiction. And she has a new book out called Dopamine Nation, and it's about how Digital media has turned us all into dopamine addicts. And in her view, Instagram is a drug, and it was designed to be taken as a drug. So, wow. <laughs> Let's see what she's got to say. We're going to get with Dr. Lemke in just a moment after this quick word from our sponsor. Today's show is brought to you by Carrie Grant, who makes my all-time favorite SPF sunblock. It comes in 30 mil and new larger 50 mil containers. I'm going away on vacation next week to Hawaii. There's a lot of sun there. So what am I doing? I'm bringing two bottles of Cary Grand SPF with me. Why do I love this stuff? Well, compared to any other sunblock I've used, it smells great 
and it feels great on my skin. I'm not, I'm not kidding you. It's made with red raspberry seed oil. It's made with organic French plum oil. The block is a nano zinc oxide. It'll block UVA, UVB. So UVA is A for aging. UVB is B for burning. You don't want either one of those things. It's a great product. Check them out. Carrygrand.com. K-A-R-I-G-R-A-N. Great products, great people, great mission. Check them out. Dr. Anna, how are you today? Hi, David. I'm fine. Thanks for calling. Absolutely. Where, where do we find you today? I am in my office on the campus of Stanford University. Oh, lovely. I love the way Stanford smells. Huh. It's got I all those giant eucalyptus trees. Yes, it does. It does have a lot of trees, a huge property with a lot of trees. It's a nice place. Yeah, it absolutely is. So you've written this book called Dopamine Nation. What's yes. going on there? Tell me about this book. Well, um, it's called, as you say, it's called Dopamine Nation. The subtitle is Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. And the book is basically about the fact that we live in this um, high reward drugified ecosystem that's made us all vulnerable to the problem of overconsumption and in some cases addiction. And that in order to navigate this really unprecedented world of uh, excessive reward, we need to think about new ways of living. And so the book really tries to lay out how to essentially achieve the good life in a world where we're constantly being um, invited to um, engage in addictive behaviors. And I hold out my patients with addiction in recovery as modern day prophets for how to do that. Um, you use the word indulgence. What do, you, what do you mean by an indulgence? Well, what I mean by that is, I mean, it's a, it, it is a moralistic word, isn't it? It sort of has a kind of judgy quality to it. Um, and, and I guess I do kind of mean it that way in, in that I think we, we've become so um, inundated with pleasure and so insulated from pain that we, we hardly even know anymore um, what it is to experience pain and distress and that most of our suffering comes from um, excessive reward. And I talk about the neuroscience of addiction and why seeking pleasure actually contributes to pain. Um, so, so I do see our world as an overindulgent world. And I'm gonna talk a lot about language today. You, you use the word discomfort. Mm -hmm. And th this is something I talk a lot about with my audience, um, being comfortable with being uncomfortable. Right, right. And um, is that part of what we're seeing here? People are just can't do that anymore. Yeah, I mean, what, you know, what I've been seeing in my in my psychiatric practice over the last twenty five years is a growing number of individuals who really cannot tolerate any kind of distress, even minimal physical or emotional discomfort. Um, you know, and I think that, that they're, these, these folks are maybe extreme examples, but in many ways, they're representative of all of us um, in that we're constantly distracting ourselves from the present moment, from our own discomfort and suffering. Um, we're, we're plugged in everywhere we go, um, always looking for sort of that next pleasurable hit. 
And I, I think as a result, the, the, essentially the thesis of my book is that as a result, we're, we're all more miserable. And again, that comes down to the neuroscience and dopamine and why it is that um, constant pleasure ultimately leads to more pain and suffering. That's right. Total comfort leads to total decay. Um, yeah. I, I mean, are, do you, do you agree with that or are you being sarcastic? No, no, absolutely. <laughs> okay. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, um, you know, I, your world, um, is more around, um, addictive behavior, but I, I would say sort of the precursor to that is this idea, the desire for, um, you know, we're, we're sold this idea of, uh, how comfortable can we get? more comfortable is better. And if you end up spending 20 years laying in a lazy boy chair, looking at the television, there's not going to be a good outcome there. Right, exactly. Um, and, and that's essentially, you know, the core of, of my book, Dopamine Nation, because I think that, I mean, these are sort of age old wisdom that we've kind of forgotten um, in part because we don't, you know, the, the, the process of sliding into this um, sort of a constant state of almost, I would say, like self-titillation has, mm. been, has been a gradual one. And I think we, we've, we, we've gotten there without even realizing that we've gotten there. And, and, you know, one of the main messages of my book is that what we need to do now is intentionally make our lives less convenient, mm. intentionally seek out. Um, painful, arduous, challenging things, yes. in, in intentionally issue or decline or avoid the easy way, because we live in an, in an ecosystem that that's constantly inviting us, um, you know, to essentially pleasure ourselves to take the easy way, a culture that's telling us that if we're not constantly happy, then something's wrong with us. I so agree with that. And I, I think that, um, we're going to get more of this in a second. I want to, I want to clarify some terms for people. So what's dopamine? Dopamine is a neurotransmitter and neurotransmitters are the molecules in the brain that bridge the gap between two neurons. Neurons are the workhorse cell of the brain. Um, they send signals through um, electrical stimuli that go from one length of the neuron to another and then pass that electrical signal to the next neuron. But there's a little space between those neurons that's bridged by these molecules called neurotransmitters. And dopamine is the neurotransmitter that is thought to be most intimately connected to the experience of pleasure, reward, and motivation. It's not the only neurotransmitter involved in that process, but it is sort of the final common pathway. Um, so let's contrast that with um, a couple other ones. So oxytocin. So what? oxytocin is yeah, oxytocin is not a neurotransmitter. Oxytocin, oh, okay. yeah, it's it's a hormone. Okay. But it's a hormone that, very interestingly, um, my colleague here at Stanford, Rob Malenka, and his team recently discovered that the release of oxytocin in the brain actually stimulates the release of dopamine in the reward pathway, which is not all that surprising. Um, you know, oxytocin is our love hormone. It's the hormone that's involved in pair bonding, um, in mother, you know, mothers release oxytocin when they're nursing their babies, for example. Um, so it's often called the love hor hormone. Um, and it's not really a surprise that loving 
um, someone would be rewarding and would release dopamine. But Malenka's group is has actually shown this, you know, in in the laboratory to be uh, to be the case that the release of oxytocin leads to the release of dopamine. So I, um, I'm very curious about this now. So um, I, I think of oxytocin is sort of the connection hormone. Yes. Right? So that mm-hmm. um, uh, helps build connection. It's um, it, but dopamine um, from what, if I take, I'm going to extrapolate on what you just told me. Um, it, it, does it, it say I'm uh, engaged in some kind of behavior that gets me like quick dopamine hits? Like uh, I got a lot of likes on Instagram. Woohoo! Um, how does that affect my ability to connect or not connect? Yeah. So I think that you're unfairly maligning dopamine. Um, (laughs) Dopamine is not in and of itself bad. In fact, dopamine is essential for survival. There's a fascinating experiment in which um, a a strain of mice was bred in in the laboratory to lack dopamine altogether. And um, when you put these these mice in in a cage, let's say just a body length away from a bowl of food, the mice would starve to death. Why? Because dopamine is what motivates us to seek out Uh reward. And without dopamine, we don't seek out reward. And if we don't seek out reward, we die, right? So seeking out reward and avoiding pain is fundamental to our survival. And dopamine may be even more important for motivation um, to seek out the reward than the, the experience of pleasure once we get the reward. Because with those same mice, if you take the food and you actually put it into their mouths, they chew it and they eat it and they seem to enjoy it. So it's not that they can't enjoy the food without dopamine, but they won't look for the food without dopamine. So get, getting back to your question, you know, we need dopamine. Uh, we absolutely need it. It's essential to get us, you know, our butts off the couch and, and out the door to, to do things that we need to do in order to survive. The problem is that we live in a day and age where we can have everything delivered to us sitting on the couch and the amount of dopamine that is released by these highly engineered products is much, much more than our brains can handle. And that is the fundamental problem. So, all right. You've, uh, you're rocking my world here. (laughs) That's good. That doesn't happen often to me. Let me just say. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, if I take heroin, um, does heroin release dopamine in my brain? It sure does. Yep. Okay. So, um, this is, this is going to be an extreme. Um, so I'm taking heroin. I'm getting a lot of dopamine. Um, therefore I don't need to get my dopamine from anything else because I have this super powerful direct my brain dopamine hit. So these other sort of things that are perhaps not as, of course, not as destructive or, you know, self-indulgent, um, I won't do because I'm, I'm getting it here. Is that, did I get that right? Well, I mean, I think you're, if I understand what you're saying, you're, you're edging toward, you know, the, the important point here, which is that if you take something like heroin, which by the way, is an opioid binds to the opioid receptor, um, you know, works on the brain, the body in that way, but also releases dopamine in the brain's reward pathway. 
it releases so much dopamine that it makes other so-called natural rewards like finding food, clothing, shelter, a mate, pale in comparison. And so what, what can happen, and this is essentially what does happen when people become severely addicted to drugs like heroin, is that their brain becomes confused and essentially ignores the salience and positivity of natural rewards and frankly, any other reward in favor of seeking out and obtaining just the heroin. And ultimately the brain then mistakes the heroin for something that it needs for survival. So, so that, that is the, you know, the, the sort of tipping point that happens when people become severely addicted and such a mystery for people who aren't addicted to understand how could this person destroy themselves and the people who love them, you know, chasing this substance, can't they see what it's doing to them in their lives? And the truth is they cannot. So you can, you get to a point where you really cannot see the consequences because your, your brain is so incredibly focused on obtaining the drug out of this kind of false sense of needing it to survive. It's become so much more salient than any, any other drug. And then even if you can see the problems, you're not able physiologically to resist the incredible compulsions to continue to chase the drug. Okay. We're going to ratchet it down now. So now um, we're going to move out of heroin and we're going to move into Instagram. Yeah. So a little more socially acceptable, um, but there are people um, who just live in Instagram. So what's going on there? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, what I think is very important for society to recognize is that Instagram is a drug. Mm. It, it releases dopamine in the reward pathway, exactly like other reinforcing addictive drugs that people have been taking for centuries. It's a brand new drug, but, but it is a drug. And it was engineered to be that. It was engineered to keep people actively engaged, to make it difficult to stop using it, you know, to get off. Um, and, 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 you know, I think that was done intentionally. I don't think that the makers of these various social media platforms, even themselves, had any idea, you know, how overwhelmingly pleasing these platforms would be and how many people would, would you know, become hooked. But there, there's no doubt that, that, that these, these uh, you know, these digital products are, powerful drugs. Now, let me just, there are a couple caveats to that. Just because something is a drug doesn't mean that we shouldn't ever consume it, right? We, we consume alcohol on a regular basis, right? People use recreational cannabis and people use nicotine. And I mean, there are all kinds of, you know, pleasing, rewarding things out there. So it's not to say that it's just like horrific and we should eliminate it, but we do need to recognize that it is a drug and that there's enormous inter-individual variability. So for example, you might really get a lot of pleasure and reward out of heroin. Whereas for me, heroin might just make me nauseous and vomit and not really do much for me. But Instagram, on the other hand, might be just the thing, you know, that for my brain, that's incredibly reinforcing that I have trouble, you know, getting off of. So there, people do come to these various drugs with different levels of vulnerability to the kind of pathologic attachment that we worry about. Do you see, um, you have a, you, you know, you have a long practice, um, and 
so you know in the last 15 years of your practice social media has become and and you know phones um do you see it in like an age bias towards certain of these things um i you know i would say that initially you know starting in the early 2000s um I didn't, I would say I saw more of a gender bias than an age bias. So, and then the first wave in my practice was because social media was still in its infancy around 2001 was actually men online um, looking at pornography. That, that was really the first wave of folks coming in who had, you know, had a problem, let's say with that particular type of activity but it had been manageable until the smartphone, the internet and the smartphone came along. And then the kind of 24 seven access just led to just an, you know, an inability anymore to control consumption. I think the second wave was young men and video games. And you know, these waves are ongoing, by the way, it's not like they, they ended. They're sort of, maybe they're tsunamis. You know, the first tsunami was, was pornography. The second was video games. And the third, has been social media, which is often linked to um, some of these other activities as well. And then I've seen more, more women. But I have to say, you know, across the ages, I, I've seen people really in all age categories uh, with this problem. Older people too are, you know, pretty savvy with the technology. And also it's not, the technology's, you know, very user-friendly, right? It's not that hard. Um, to figure it out, especially to, you know, to engage in a way that's like watching a YouTube video or posting something on Instagram. So I, I see some subgroupings, young men in video games, middle-aged men in pornography, you know, um, more younger women in social media. But I wouldn't say that, I would say that it crosses all, all age groups. I, I have just um, sort of, personally, um, I've taken to not carrying my phone with me all the time. So I like leave in the car. Um, and I've, um, sort of, uh, just sit <laughs> like somewhere. I'm just sit. Yeah. Right. And, and I, um, I'm, I'm unreachable for right. a period of time. This is to considerable consternation of people who want to get in touch with me, but it's like, Hey, wait 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. I know. Okay. And even, I know. And just the fact that 10 minutes is now a long time to wait is, I mean, yeah. think of the absurdity of that. I know I'm, I'm, you know, I'm struck when I travel in a, and in an airport and I mean, people aren't even people watching anymore. Right. They're, they're YouTube watching. It's just such a incredible revolution in the way that we have downtime, you know, in the way that we occupy our occupy ourselves in the spaces in between. Um, you know, I, I, I will tell you, I, I personally, not that I'm saying that I, I don't say this in a, you know, in a, in a judgy or a righteous way. I just, it, what, what is true is that my husband and I did not get um, smartphones when they came out. And, and really I didn't have a smartphone until about um, a year ago. And then only then I got one because I had to for work in order to be able to prescribe with our um, secure prescribing. And otherwise, except when I'm logging into my prescription, uh, I, I don't, I don't have it on and I'm not, I don't navigate the world with it. I'm not attached to it in any way. And 
I'm in many ways, I feel kind of out of it, but in other ways, I'm so grateful that I kind of never got into it because I don't, people will say, how can you possibly live without, I mean, how can you work? How can you live? And it's like, well, it's not that hard. And, you know, people say, well, how, you know, isn't it hard for people to reach you? I mean, I, I think in many ways I'm more reachable than many people who have phones. Um, you know, I do it in a different way. I, I do it through email. I, I bunch my um, responses. But I mean, I'm to me, the smartphone, when it came out, it reminded me so much of a pager. You know, in, as doctors, we had to, I had to carry a pager for many years that would beep in the middle of the night, 24-7. And I was so happy the day that I could stop carrying a pager when I went fully outpatient. Um, and the smartphone came along and I was like, the last thing I want is another pager, right? Um, so I've been, you know, is it true that, you know, I miss out on some things because I don't have a phone? That's true. But I think I gain more than I lose. And what's incredible to me is how much of our, our cortical structures are now occupied with our phones. Like even when we're not using it, we all know where it is, right? It's as if it's now sort of usurped a whole area of our brains. <laughs> it's fascinating. Uh, so it, talk to me about this. Um, my understanding, and you, you're, I'm sure you're going to correct me on this, Dr. Anna, but that the brain needs a certain amount of rest and space to sort of process. And if what we're doing is filling that space continually, except when we're like fully asleep, does that have any effect on us? Yeah, so one of my favorite ways to talk about this is to um, talk about something called the resting mental networks which is, some, which is a, a brain state that was discovered serendipitously, accidentally, um, when researchers about 20 years ago started to do functional magnetic resonance imaging studies on the brain, which these are fMRIs. And what they would do is they would take pictures of the brain in real time while they were doing a specific task, like looking at pictures or looking at numbers. Anyway, they had something they had to do. And then in between each of those tasks, they would just be sitting there and resting. And when scientists were first evaluating these pictures, they were very focused on the time that the person was doing the task, and they totally ignored the time in between. But somewhere along the line, somebody became curious about this in-between time and discovered something really fascinating, that during a specific tasks, very specific and isolated regions of the brain are occupied, for example, the prefrontal cortex. But during these in-between resting mental states, the whole brain seems to light up in a way that's like has these synchronous waves in a rhythmic way that seems like it's doing something purposeful and active, but not specific. And this is really, really fascinating. And now there's a literature on this, um, you know, what's happening during this renting, me, me, resting mental network. And I mean, as you say, what, what is likely happening is an integration of the various different parts of the brain. As we take the information gained from the specific task and essentially incorporated across diverse networks. And so you're absolutely right. My concern is that those in-between times, which are really crucial for consolidation of intellectual, cognitive, and emotional experiences are now being usurped 
by these tangential distracting processes like checking our phones. Do you have any sense about, like if you were to, if I was your patient, and you were to prescribe to me um, a certain amount of resting brain time, what would be optimal for me? You know, I, I, I don't think we have the data to say, you know, what the amount of time is that's healthy or not healthy using digital products, healthy or not healthy, resting your brain. But I think it's very clear that 24-7 is not a good idea, um, distracting yourself from yourself, and that we need time away from these highly rewarding activities. In my book, I talk about a, a young Stanford student that I saw who came to me seeking help for depression and anxiety. And let me say mo mo many, if not most of my patients come with that as their chief complaint. They're not coming looking for how can I use social media less? So I, I, now that I have a, a reputation in that area, I certainly do, we, we do see those patients, but many times they're just feeling bad, you know, unhappy in their lives. So I explored a little bit about this young woman and how she spent her time. And what I discovered is that she was essentially plugged into some device or another 24 seven. When she was sleeping, she was plugged in. Walking to class, she was plugged in. Uh, making her dinner, she was plugged in. You know, eating her eating her dinner, she was plugged in. So I suggested to her um, that she unplug, that she just try walking to class without her earbuds in, without listening to anything, just free like that. And her response was fascinating. She was both terrified and said, "Well, that would be so boring. Um, why would I do that? You know, what would be the point of that?" And what I said to her was, "You know." Boredom is actually a really scary emotion because all of a sudden we're confronted with questions about the deeper meaning and purpose of our lives. And those are things that we need to, we need to be confronted with. You know, we need to stop and think about that. Um, and if you're constantly running away from yourself, you never have the opportunity to do that. So to make a long story short, she gave it a try and she came back. And she was like, you know, I did it. And at first it was really boring and strange, but then I started to notice the trees, which, <laughs> <I think> <laughs> <laughs> which is exactly, exactly the prescription. That is exactly, that was exactly what I wanted to happen. And, and you know, um, that's exactly right. I mean, like, you start to notice the real world around you. And it's not to say that the virtual world is all bad. I would never want to come up and say that, you know, uh, social media is awful or any time online is terrible. I mean, I have four teenagers. They're online a lot and they're connecting with their friends online. And there are many ways to meaningfully connect through social media and online. But we can't do it to the exclusion of IRL. In, re in real life, which I love to say that because it makes me sound hip. I, I, I believe it does. I don't think it really does. But, you know, my teenagers, I, like I said to my son the other day, I said, well, where's Matias? He says, oh, he's AWK. I said, what, what's AWK? He's away from keyboard. I'm like, oh, great. Okay. We have an acronym now for away from keyboard. <laughs> Uh, you know, in, in those brain imaging studies, were they noticing any gender differences? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I'd have to read it more carefully. I've, I've, I've heard, I've been told that um, one of the gender differences is that men, when they're not doing anything, are, and, and you know, they're 
excuse me, the other says, what are you thinking about? And they say, nothing. They're really thinking about nothing. And, <laughs> and, 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 and women don't have that capacity. They're just like, when they're sitting there, they're thinking about something. And Nah, I don't believe no? it. Okay. Nah. <laughs> no, because, because one of the major challenges for everybody now is that we can't stop thinking. And, and that's right. very uncomfortable, right? And so what, what we're looking for is a way to shut off the noise inside of our heads and the relentless thoughts that we have, some of which are, you know, kind of frightening and crazy. So um, that's why we're always distracting ourselves. Um, so let's, uh, let's circle back to um, one of your areas of expertise, social, social media. Um, and so I'm guessing, are you on social media? Yeah. So again, I, you know, uh, my, my husband and I kind of made a conscious decision. Now, part, one of the main reasons I should say we did this is because we had small children and we, we felt that um, we needed to try to be fully present for, for these little people as we sort of raised them and you know, brought them into the world and tried to raise them to the best of our ability. And we, we did worry about being distracted. So we never got any of those accounts. So I don't have a single social media account and I never have. At one point when my first book came out, somebody made a Twitter account for me, but I've never tweeted on it or read any tweets on it. So no, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I'm not on social media. I feel I know a lot about it through my kids, you know, who are on Instagram and Snapchat and uh, discord and, you know, what have you. And of course I've learned a lot through my patients, but I myself know, and I'll tell you the reason why, because I wouldn't be able to control myself guaranteed. I would get sucked right in. I would be totally compulsive. And I, I just, I don't want to do that. You don't strike me as a compulsive person. Oh, I, my, I, I very much am. Absolutely. You just, you just got to get the right drug for me, but with, with the right, <laughs> with the right drug, I'm, I'm, I'll take off. I got, I have... <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty funny. Um, yeah. Social media. Uh, I'm, uh, I have a very, uh, because of the business I'm in, um, I have knowledge of the incredible minutia that these um, companies have on us. And it's, um, you know, even though they're not like Cambridge, they don't do the Cambridge Analytica thing anymore. They don't sell it to people wholesale with discrete names on it. They have it. And it's um, really frightening and astonishing. And uh, as I mentioned before we get on the phone, my feeling is that um, Zook and Cheryl and Facebook, evil. Um, and they know exactly what they're up to and they're monetizing it. Interesting. Well, I mean, I, I think there's no doubt that all, all of these corporations are, you know, monetizing it and about the bottom line and are, are really find themselves accidentally at, at the center of this controversy. But I, I guess I don't ascribe to them evil intent. Um, I, I mean, I, 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 I I don't think that they set out, you know, to get a generation or, or 10 hooked, hooked on, on this. I mean, I think they themselves are probably surprised at the extent to which um, people spend the amounts of time that they do online. I mean, I don't know why we would be surprised because we have sort of an infinite capacity to distract ourselves. I think Aldous Huxley said that, Um, but 
but yes, I, I do agree with you that that the that the profit motive is certainly um, at the core of their business, and that very little will shake them from that. Um, unless unless they're forced to by some kind of government regulations. Yeah, I find that they're uh, the sort of act that they put on of like, oh, gosh, really? <laughs> yeah, but but you know what? So I mean, but your 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 comments raise another point for for me. Um, and I guess I kind of wonder what you think about this. But you know, I I do think that there's. My my approach to the specter of, of imagining that these corporations and other entities, um, you know, have information on me is there. I think there are a couple of responses you could have to that. You could you could be outraged and you know be be paranoid and be upset, or or you could say, well, you know if I live a life that's totally transparent and don't do anything that, and try to live consistent with my values and, and don't engage in activities that I would be ashamed of, then why do I care, you know, if people know where I went and what, what I did? So I, I do think that there's a hmm. way in which this kind of, um, and I do talk about that in my book about a radical honesty and living a transparent life and the ways in which, you know, technology has invaded our space is also interesting, interestingly, a, a, a way for us potentially to be held accountable in mm. ways that that we might not otherwise be. That's so interesting. It's 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 like, um, you know, in olden times when there was the isolated village and everybody knew what everybody was doing. So nobody got to be too nuts. That's right, right? David. That's exactly right. That that in some ways, this kind of you know, radical transparency and is it sort of like, well, you know, if you're going to do it, people are going to know you did it. Do you know, are you okay with that? And I think people would think twice if, um, you know, if, if they thought all of their movements are online were, um, were going to be known. I guess the difference is um, in the small village, um, you're, you're in a diverse village. When you're in social media, the algorithm pumps you into a village full of like-minded people who could be just as nuts as you are and you get more nuts. Well, that's true. That's very true. That happens. And the other thing too, is that in a village, like if you actually have a physical problem, like you mm. don't have enough food or you get sick, people will physically come and rally and help you hopefully right. anyway. Um, whereas in this virtual village, you know, th that's not there. Right. I mean, people are, are not able to, physically be present for us if they're living across the world or or even maybe they wouldn't even be willing to i don't i don't know well because there's no um they don't have skin in the game right right if you're right. in the village you're all i mean everybody's in the same boat right right, um, right. you can't you, you can't get out of the boat <laughs> right right virtual it's like i think that and i think that's why the um uh social can can skew so negative so quickly yes right right because there's no um there's no ramifications i i type some kind of mean comment about whatever um so what i don't get thrown out of the village right right yeah you know and, and the pleasures are so easy right it's mm, not yeah. it, i mean how you know a, a tweet is not really that effortful 
right? right. It doesn't, it's not that hard to write, you know, 10 words. Um, it, so, and, and the rewards are potentially enormous. And again, this is the way, ways mm. in which it's drugified where um, you get a big reward for little effort, which is not how the brain was wired. It's supposed to be big effort for little reward. <laughs> yeah. How do you help your people you know, as we were talking in the beginning about this idea of um, discomfort and un uncomfortable, how do you coach people? Coach is the wrong word because you treat them. Sorry. No, um, no, that's fine. I, I'm not a snob that way. I, I'm, in fact, <laughs> those coaches are making a lot more money than I ever will. They <laughs> <laughs> may not have the training that you have. Um, I don't know. You know, people get their training in different ways. Like I'm not, I don't believe that having gone to med school is necessarily better training than some lived experience that really creates okay. wisdom. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, how do you help people I mean, you mentioned the woman, um, your patient who was like, okay, we're going to like unplug for your walk during class. That's a pretty low level of, it might be a very high level of uncomfortability for her. Okay. It, un, a very high level for her. But if we think like, uh, what would happen uh, to someone like that? If we said, okay, we want you to stand in a cold shower for three minutes. You're not mm. going to die. Mm -hmm. You're just going to be uncomfortable. You're mm -hmm. going to be fine. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, right. Okay. So, so the, the, my, my book lays this out um, at, in a series of steps. And the first step is to abstain from re highly rewarding experiences, especially those that, that we have a compulsive overconsumptive relationship with. And the, the result of that is, to experience pain because when we withdraw pleasure, we go into withdrawal, um, which is a really uncomfortable sensation. And I talk about the neuroscience of how and why that happens using the metaphor of a pleasure pain balance. But anyway, the first point of intervention with my patients is actually to have them not do their pleasurable activity, which is painful. That is painful, but it's a time limited pain as the brain adjusts to the absence of that drug and sets a new, what we call hedonic set point or reward set point, which on average takes about two to four weeks. So the first thing that I will have my patients do is abstain from their drug of choice, whether it's cookies or cannabis or, you know, candy crunch to have them abstain uh, for uh, about a month. And what, and, and really it's an opportunity to experience discomfort, a lot of discomfort, but it's time limited. And that's a really important thing that people have to learn is that in general, suffering is time limited. Like the, the body is, and the brain is constantly kind of going through these ebbs and flows of pain. And that sometimes without doing anything at all, it just abates, it kind of goes away. Um, but we're so we're living in a culture where we can instantaneously do something to change the way we feel. So we don't know how to not do something and just endure the way we feel. So that's really the first lesson. Don't ingest this thing. You will feel uncomfortable and don't try to do anything to feel better. Just take it um, that, that there's loads to be learned in that experience. And patients will usually come back a month later and be surprised at how much less anxious and less depressed they feel just by doing that. Now, again, initially in the first two weeks, they feel worse because they're in withdrawal, but as their reward set, you know, set point readjusts to the absence of that drug, they feel better. 
And then what I talk about, you know, in the seventh chapter of my book is how actually inviting painful experiences into our lives can be a way to feel secondary pleasure. You, you raised the idea of a cold shower. And I, I actually talk about a patient of mine who discovered that cold water bath immersion was essential to his early recovery from um, alcohol and cocaine, that by exposing himself to this painful stimulus, he could get a kind of a drug reaction, a dopamine surge that was in many ways much better because it was secondary. So we had to endure pain and then he had this longer lasting dopamine feeling, a good feeling um, that lasted a lot longer than cocaine did. And we know from the science I, that- I, I, yeah. I just want to stop you for yeah. a second because I'm, I, I'm envisioning a seesaw. Yeah, right. Right. And so if I put a lot of weight on the dopamine side of the seesaw and I keep doing that, when I take it off, it's going to snap into uncomfortable pain mode, Right. Right. But if I put like something in the uncomfortable side, it doesn't have to be really painful, just something uncomfortable. And I'm, and I get used to that. Then when I take that off, it snaps over to the dopamine. Is that really simplistic or did I get that right? No, that, so um, that's the core of my book, Dopamine Nation. I talk about the pleasure pain balance. I talk about, you know, weight on one side, gremlins, um, on the other side to bring it level. Again, this is a process called neuroadaptation. That's what neuroscientists call it. That's exactly the metaphor that I use. And I think it's a really intuitive one that helps people understand what happens in the brain. So in my book, I have drawings with a balance and oh. weight on one side and gremlins oh. on the other. So David, you will have to read my book so that yeah. you, can, you can see it writ large. <laughs> it, it only came out yesterday. So I'm apologies. Um, I will read your book. Yes, yeah. no worries, no worries. Um, that's really interesting. Okay. So now I got one more situation for you. Exercise. Now exercise seems to have, there's an element of uncomfortability, but there's also an element of chemicals get released. What, how does that fit into this? Right. So exercise is in my chapter on pain as a, as a means to experience pleasure and uh, the idea is, again, this, this teeter-totter, this pleasure-pain balance, but it also draws on a literature called the science of hormesis. Oh, and I love horm hormesis. Yeah, there you go. Oh, it's, it's my favorite thing. Oh, excellent. I'm so glad you used that word. <laughs> yeah, right. So hormesis is all about um, the, the discovery, really, which is, I, I agree, fascinating, that exposure to toxic or noxious chemicals or stimuli um, can actually be healthy for us. And, and, you know, there are lots of animal studies showing this, for example, if you take fruit flies and you spin them in a centrifuge, just the right amount, they will live longer and climb faster and be more agile than, than fruit flies who have never been, um, you know, exposed to that centrifuge. Same thing with, you know, heat, or there's this very controversial, but interesting look at Hiroshima and irradiation exposure, suggesting that, of course, people who were at the center of the blast died tragically. And people who were far enough away from the blast were not exposed to radiation, but people who were at a concentric distance that was not too much and not too little and who were radiation exposed might've actually had a few lower rates of cancer. Again, it's a controversial study, may not be true, but it may be true, but it certainly is true that a certain amount of exposing ourselves to noxious stimuli um, is good for us. 
And exercise is a great example. So exercise is immediately toxic to cells and there are all kinds of ways in which it's, it's damaging. And yet we know, and our great, great, great grandmothers could have told us this, that um, exercise, it makes for a, a good and healthy lifestyle and that people who exercise have less heart disease, less obesity, live longer, feel better. So it's, it's, it's not an unknown thing that exercise is healthful, but again, it, it speaks to this whole idea of hormesis and pain as um, a potential means toward pleasure. And what happens in the aftermath of exercise is that um, neurotransmitter le levels like dopamine, norepinephrine, serotonin uh, become elevated and they remain elevated for sustained periods of time, which is why you know we feel good after exercise. So I always say to patients, um, and, and when I'm teaching on this topic in general, I say, you know, what we need to start thinking about is not what feels good in the moment, but what feels good after we're done doing mm. it. And in particular, those things that feel good in the moment, think about how you feel afterwards. So for example, my patients who play video games, I, I always ask them, how do you feel right after you stop playing the video game and you disengage? And of course, what they'll describe is a kind of a come down. And it really is a literal come down, probably a dopamine deficit state, which is what drives reuse. Um, hormesis is um, sort of like the central organizing principle of my life. Oh, great. Mm -hmm. Because I, I, I don't use the word noxious. I use the word um, stress and adaptation. Right. So there's a, you, you, you have a baseline, you apply a stress, you go below the baseline, and there's an adaptation right. response that goes above the baseline, stress again. And, and this is how people, you know, at a, at a base level, it's how like uh, muscle building works, or that's yeah. how you how you learn Mandarin or and it's all like uncomfortable, right? right? But it's the adaptation. If you don't do right. that as um, like as a human, you're just on a downward slope. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Right. I mean, the, the, you know, the neurobiological or the biological definition of stress is any deviation from your baseline. Yeah. And, and it, I think that's really good concept to keep in mind. And by the way, you know, doing painful things is, uh, or challenging things, right, is, is a deviation from baseline and stressful, but the counter effect is, is very positive. Doing pl highly pleasurable, highly reinforcing things is also a form of stress mm. because it is a deviation from baseline. Um, and so I think it's important for people and the corrective mechanism for that kind of stress is, is actually the hangover or the come down. And mm. the, the, that lousy feeling. So again, I think, you know, it's this pleasure pain balance and how they're opposite sides of, of the same balance. Okay. So I got to ask you, so you said that you're compulsive yeah, and you just need the right sort of activator. What, yeah. what, what's your, what's your, what's your drug of choice? Well, I, I have two primary drugs of choice. One of them I'm not going to tell you about because it's in my book. And so I'm going to let you read about it. Um, but uh, the other one, um, which I don't go into, into as much detail in my book, but it's certainly um, my other drug of choice is my to-do list. I am oh. very neurotic about my to-do list, ah. um, meaning I'm a workaholic. And I think people, I don't think we talk enough about the ways in, because it's so, you know, reinforcing for, to get stuff done and be like, how do you get so much stuff done? And, and I'm like, you know, in a way it's great. And in a way, I, I really wish I could relax a little bit more. It's, it's actually oh. hard for me um, to, to relax. I'm always thinking about my to-do list and the things that I have to yeah. get done to the, to the, you know, to the 
exclusion of more important things like taking time to connect with um, people in my family, for example. So I think it's important to acknowledge that it, like drugs come in many different forms. Wow. You've um, shown a light on one of my drugs that I didn't know I had. <laughs> I thought so, David. I wasn't going to say it, but I, I had a feeling. <laughs> you are a professional. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, we'll just throw that into the bucket of things that activate David's compulsions. <laughs> There's, there are many more. I have much more than two. Um, this is, this is wonderful, Dr. Anna. Um, I'm, I'm thrilled to be able to speak to you and um, I can't wait. You, you know, I'm going to get your book and you know what I'm going to do is I want, well, never mind. I'll um, we'll, we'll post, we're, we're big on social media. So we'll, we'll, put some yeah. stuff out of it on social media Great. and we'll put, we'll put up a hormesis graph. Um, and, um, I think everybody in the world should like understand what hormesis is. Right. <laughs> um, is there anything else you want to tell our folks today? No, thanks so much for having me. It's been a great conversation. It's been wonderful speaking to you. A pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks everyone for joining us on the show today. Great to have you with us. Uh, hey, so what are your thoughts on this idea that Social media is essentially a designer drug. Wow. Um, send, send me your thoughts on that. Uh, David at superage.com. Would love to hear from you. And if you get a chance, maybe share this podcast with your friends and leave a rating if you could. Leave a comment. We love those. Uh, this coming week, we're not going to do a Super Age podcast. We're going to take a week off. I'm going on vacation. The first vacation I've had since pre-COVID. It's been a while. I need a break. So no newsletter next week, no Super Age podcast, but we'll get back with you right after the break. And I hope everyone have a wonderful week and we'll see you in two weeks. Take care now. Bye.